This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Running through the streets, solving all the mysteries, crushes and aliens, lots of other crazy things Welcome to Mystery Team Inc. I'm Kayla. And I'm Maggie. I've never gone first in the name. <laughs> Did you like it? No. <laughs> That's okay. It felt like way too much responsibility. Yeah. <sighs> We're in. You ready? Mm-hmm. Do you have any business? No. Are we just going to jump right in? I guess so. Oh, I do have something inconsequential to share. Please. This morning, I heard a landline ring. Oh, in your house? Nope. Just in someone out, else's house? I think, like, the neighbors whose door is, like, next to my yard have a landline in their house. Okay. Or a ghost. Yeah. I haven't heard that. So- it took me a second to even recognize what I was what hearing. What you're hearing, yeah. It's funny to think that, like, at some point, that sound will basically be non-existent. Like, think about all of, like, the phone sounds from, like, Alexander Graham Bell's time that, like... This is existentially troubling. People heard all the time. Or, like, think about even just sounds like, I don't know, I think about, like... Like, dial-up internet. Yeah, but I'm thinking, like, that have already become extinct. Like, all the sounds from, like, you know, like, centuries past of, like, things that we just don't do anymore. And they're, like, just lost to history. But at one time, The tuning of a radio. Sure. Do people still do that? I don't know. I don't know. It's so bizarre. Um, talk radio in the morning. <laughs> Lost to history. What are those called? Shock DJs? Yeah. Um, now we're like, DJ Casey in the butts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shock, shock jocks. Shock jocks. Um, my Bluetooth, whenever it doesn't connect to my car, it turns on the radio. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> like, who is this for? How did it get here? Yeah, remember Radio Disney? Ugh, of course. We can't go down this. <laughs> we can't go this, down this down radio this rabbit hole? No. I will sing Mamba number five, but the Disney version. Mm-hmm. No wonder our whole generation is fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. I'm so excited for your mystery. I'm so glad. I haven't told you a thing about it. I know nothing about it. She doesn't even have a genre. Uh, not even a genre. <clears throat> not a genre. Um, it's far less consequential than Amelia. Uh, that's good. I'm like ready to be like into something that's less consequential. You won't cry. You, if you do, let's not say things we don't mean. I can find a way to cry about just about anything. Um, like when I remember that dogs exist, I cry. So like, that's a rough one though. I know. Because we're like, they were so pure. We don't deserve them. No. But we do deserve this story. We might not actually. <laughs> it's <laughs> if we deserve it, it's probably bad. Yeah. So what? We probably don't deserve it. We do. Okay. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Okay. So today, I'm, my mystery is 
the Philadelphia experiment. No! What? <laughs> Are you fucking serious? Yeah. In- how is that less consequential? Well, it's not, like, heavy and important. Yeah. So, my sources today are the Philadelphia Experiment Chronicles colon Extended Edition mm-hmm. by Commander X. <laughs> <laughs> I want that to be my name. I, you can have it. And the Philadelphia Experiment colon Project Invisibility by William L. Moore and Charles Berlitz. Now, when I was doing this, I vaguely remember hearing that like one of the people in this story is actually Commander X, but I can't remember where I heard it and I can't find it. So that's probably untrue, Mm -hmm. but it would be very funny. Yeah. We begin. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I'm going to have to explain the first sentence, but late July or early August of 1955, A manila envelope addressed to Admiral N. Firth, Chief of the Office of Naval Research, postmarked Seminole, Texas, and bearing the words Happy Easter across the front, landed on the desk of Major Darrell L. Ritter, U.S. Marine Corps Aeronautical Project Officer at ONR. Now, I know that I opened this mystery with late July or early August, and not a date, Yeah, and that is because... Nobody in this whole thing can get their story straight. (laughs) There's a lot of this where I was like, honestly, I don't know when this happened. And I'll tell you, but that's what's going on here. In the envelope was a worn and heavily annotated copy of the book, The Case for the UFO by Morris K. Jessup. Now, sometimes people call him Dr. Morris K. Jessup. Um, Do they ever call him... Commander Morris X Jessup? (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm not clear on if he actually completed his doctorate or not, (laughs) but I think out of respect, people still call him doctor. So Dr. Morris K. Jessup was an astrophysicist, a mathematician, an all-around scientist, a researcher, and a lecturer. He served in World War I, Uh, Then he took up instructorships in astronomy and mathematics at Drake University in Iowa and at the University of Michigan. When the Depression hit, he took a job working for the U.S. Department of Agriculture as part of a team of scientists researching crude rubber in Brazil. When he returned, he signed on to an archaeological expedition for the Carnegie Institute in D.C., He went as the photographer of an expedition to the Mayan ruins in Central America. And there, as he stood in awe of the Mayan ruins, Morris Jessup became one of the first ancient astronaut theorists. We love a white man seeing brown people do things and being like, gotta be aliens. Couldn't have been. Couldn't have been. When they swear you in as an ancient astronaut theorist, do they just make you say yes? <laughs> yes. You go. It's like the whole crowd goes, ancient astronaut <laughs> theorists say, and you go, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they're in hoods, obviously. Yeah. So I, wrote, <laughs> I think I was on one when I wrote this, but I wrote... <clears throat> 
He took to pursuing ancient astronaut theory research at his own expense. He went all over Mexico, engaging in confirmation bias and historical erasure. <laughs> um, in 1954, he ran out of money and returned to the States, where he began planning a book that would be, he said, the first purely scientific examination of UFOs based on historical evidence. He believed that UFOs not only existed, but had been with us for years. His main focus was on his theory regarding UFO propulsion, which is he thought they operated using some as yet undiscovered principle of anti-gravity. You mean he knew they operated <laughs> using some as of yet undiscovered principle of anti-gravity. Correct. So this book, The Case for the UFO, was completed in <laughs> this book. <laughs> Uh, was, was it a PDF? <laughs> no, but there are PDFs of it. <laughs> but I'll explain why there are PDFs of it. So the case for the UFO was completed in January 1955. And this is the book that was sent to the offices of the ONR. What is the ONR? The Office of Naval Research. Oh, right. Um, which is from... I heard somewhere. So the Office of Naval Research is just like science for the Navy. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess the guys who got this book had like their own secret division where they like. Like us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where they made a podcast. Yeah. No, where they researched like UFOs and paranormal phenomena that like sailors experienced because the Navy was like, don't bother doing that. And they were like. Okay, wink, <laughs> wink, and then they did it on their own time, yeah. I think. Speaking of which, did you see that recently the Navy was like, yeah, we're not going to share the rest of those UFO videos with you because they're a threat to national security? No. Mm -hmm. It's not the Russians. We know it's not. So <clears throat> the copy of the book that was sent to the ONR had been heavily annotated with handwritten notes and underlinings in three colors of ink. <laughs> they looked like... It was like three only authors. alien conspiracy theorists do this <laughs> with multiple ink yes. colors. So at first they were like, oh, this has to be three authors. Specifically three aliens. Um, it looked like they were having like a conversation about the book. Like some of it, they're like making fun of it and like some of it. They're talking about, like, UFOs and their propulsion systems and stuff as if they have, like, an intimate knowledge of it. And some of it is in, like, a language that they don't, nobody knows what it is. So, <laughs> so Major Ritter passed the book to Commander George W. Hoover and Captain Sidney Sherby both of whom worked with the ONR and were also working on Project Vanguard, which aimed to develop the first watch satellite. I don't know what a watch satellite is. I Googled it, and they were like, do you want a satellite watch? And I was like, that's the end of my searching for that. And they were both also very interested in anti-gravity research. They spent a long time poring over the book. From my understanding, Ritter kept it for, like, a long time, and then he gave it to these guys who kept it for a long time. And then, sometime in the spring of 1957, they reached out to Morris Jessup and invited him to the ONR office in Washington to examine the annotated copy of his book. 
Upon examining the copy of his book, Morris happened upon what he called a curious passage that mentioned a secret naval experiment that was done in 1943. And the experiment and the handwriting seemed familiar to him. And he realized that he knew the author of these annotations. Not only did he know the author, he had been corresponding with the author for a long time. So, after he published the case for the UFO, Morris embarked on a lecture tour during which he strongly appealed to the government and to the public to put pressure on the government to invest in further research into the use of the universal gravitational field as a power source. Mid-October of 1955, Morris received a letter. The letter basically said that Jessup's theory that aliens used levitation or anti-gravity to build ancient structures was true. And the letter was signed, Carlos Miguel Allende. So Morris was intrigued. He wrote back asking for further information. And then he kind of forgot about it because he was on his lecture tour. But then, in January 1996... He was in Miami when he received another letter. He had a home in Miami, by the way. Now, this letter and the subsequent letters are totally bananas. Words are randomly capitalized. The punctuation seems to be functioning under the author's own secret rules. I would liken it to... I would liken it to an Instagram caption written by Justin Bieber after he joined Hillsong. Mm-hmm. Um, go look at one of those. They're t- <laughs> so unhinged. So the first letter opens. And then my- much like these guys, he later tonight over being affiliated with Hillsong. Did he already mm-hmm. do that? Yeah. Have you watched the Hillsong documentary on? No. It's great. I'm so excited to watch it, though. It's a series. Um, One of my favorite podcasts did a deep dive into Hillsong, and I was like, but it was before the documentary came out. Yeah. So excited. So the first letter opens, my dear Dr. Jessup, your invocation to the public that they move en masse upon their representatives and have thusly enough pressure placed at the right and sufficient number of places where from a law demanding research into Dr. Albert Einstein's unified field theory may be enacted, is not at all necessary. It took seven tries for me to understand what he's saying. Why so many words? Too many. It's it's kind of reads like like a ninth grader who thinks they're really good at writing, like trying to like write Shakespeare. I was gonna say even just a ninth grader trying to meet their word count. <laughs> Your invocation whereby the public (laughs) place thusly enough pressure, thereby enforcing the government. You're absolutely correct. So basically what he's saying is stop telling people to tell the government to do unified field theory research. A little bit on the unified field theory, because we know I love to delve into complicated physics that I don't understand anymore. So unified field theory. There are four main forces in macroscopic physics. The strong force, the weak force, the gravitational force, and the electromagnetic force. Do you care enough to know what each of those forces does, or do you just trust that they exist? 
I mean, I trust that they exist. Do I need to know? Do I need to know what they do to understand the story? No. Okay. I just think it's cool. I mean, you can talk about it. If but you think I it's already cool. learned about it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll say it. If you want to hear about it, keep listening. If you don't care, skip like, 30 seconds. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> the strong interaction is the interaction responsible for holding quarks together to form hadrons and holding neutrons and also protons together to form atomic nuclei. Okay, just skip. Okay. I'm <laughs> totally kidding. Um, the weak interaction is a short-range interaction responsible for some forms of radioactivity that acts on electrons, neutrinos, and quarks, which is mediated by the W and Z bosons. The electromagnetic interaction is the familiar interaction that acts on electrically charged particles. The photon is the exchange particle for this force. And then the gravitational interaction is a long-range attractive interaction that acts on all particles. The postulated exchange particle for this is the graviton. We have not found the graviton yet. I took these definitions straight from a website meant for children because my brain is full of holes and I don't know any of this stuff anymore. It is byjuice.com, B-Y-J-U-S. So thank you guys. You really got it. And then they showed all the equations, and I was like, which children? It was bold of me to assume that I could even understand that if I wanted to. I was like, do I need to understand this? And the fact that that I thought that I could even if I wanted to was It's just like different types of interactions between different types of stuff. Okay. So the unified field theory, a.k.a. the theory of everything, is an Oscar-nominated film starring Eddie. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Is a theory that would be basically a single set of equations that described all of the fundamental forces at once. Mm -hmm. Specifically, Einstein was seeking a theory that proved that gravity and electromagnetism were were manifestations of the same fundamental force. Right, that they were unified. Yes, as a field. Mm -hmm. But it's just a theory. Right. So... (laughs) So the unified field theory has proved elusive thus far. I haven't, like, dedicated a lot of time to looking into it, so I think probably once I have some time off, I'll solve it. You can it, hit it by juice.com. <laughs> by juice and I get it. So, and then the addition of quantum physics and quantum theory, like, made everything worse because quantum theory doesn't... Fit into anything. It doesn't agree with it's anybody like, else. Yeah. It was like, I'm not here to make friends. Right. I'm here to win. <laughs> so, <laughs> Allende says in his letter that the unified field theory was actually completed between 1925 and 1927, but Einstein told everyone it was incomplete because he was horrified by the possible uses it might be put to by a mankind that is not ready for it yet. This is another one of those scenarios where it's like, if this person had just channeled this creative energy (laughs) into like writing a feature that never got sold... It would be so helpful. If it helps, there are two feature-length films about the Philadelphia experiment. No, not about the Philadelphia experiment. That would not have been possible without Carlos M. Allende. (laughs) That's fair. No, I just mean, like, the that's a great premise for a film. Like, oh, Albert Einstein actually did, like, crack something he he pretended not to crack because what he discovered was so horrifying. And then you, like, that's a great premise. Yeah. But it doesn't need to be, <laughs> like, emailed to the Navy. <laughs> I feel like this is just performance art, though. If yeah. it's 
if it's not true, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. It's like stay really staying in your lane. St- stay stay in your lane. <laughs> it's like really strong performance art, and some people, like Julia Fox and Carlos Allende, prefer performance art. So Allende says that there have been what he calls rechecks of the math. all of his sentences are like wherefore by thusly and he's like we have done rechecks (laughs) do-overs if you will a mulligan there have been a few mulligans (laughs) yeah it's like they were proofreading each other's work i'm like there's not a better word for that no rechecks and he capitalized r in the middle of the (laughs) sentence (laughs) is it hyphenated yeah yeah um, <clears throat> they're not like proofs. No, not like choosing any like actual mathematical term. No, just like rechecks. rechecks. I don't think either of us are mathematician enough to know what the community is using. Hold on. <laughs> Byjus. <laughs> Byjus knows. So there have been rechecks, capital R, of the math. And that there is capital, all capital, proof that the unified field theory, to a certain extent, is correct. What is that proof, you ask? An experiment. To what extent, I ask? (laughs) We don't know to what extent. That proof is an experiment performed in October 1943 in which the Navy successfully made the USS Eldridge, a DE-1 destroyer ship, and its crew disappear yeah and carlos miguel allende knows this because he witnessed it yeah and he knows firsthand the damage that can be done when people fuck around with the unified field theory specifically the effects on the crew that were involved in the experiment were disastrous and damaging so he says this is where it gets a little murky I don't. This is where. <laughs> yes. We got past the quantum physics and yeah. now it gets murky. We got to the Chris Angel. <laughs> Mind freak. Mind freak fart. So he says he saw the ship disappear from the deck of the ship he was on, which is the USS Furuseth. Furu, Fur, Fur, I've never heard it said out loud, but it doesn't spell in a way that makes sense. But I think... They were sailing alongside each other, but I don't know why ships would do that. Mm-hmm. And some of the accounts say that it happened while they were at sea, and some say it happened at the dock. I have no idea. So they were, I guess, let's say they were sailing alongside each other, and he says he saw the ship became cloaked in a green mist and then disappeared to the point where all you could see was the indentation of the ship's hull in the water. Zoinks. <laughs> Can you imagine, though, how scary that would be? Yeah. The green fog is very Scooby-Doo. Yeah. When the ship returned, he said some of the crew were fused with the ship. Yeah. Some were completely gone. And those who survived went totally insane. Mm-hmm. And there will be more detailed information from another source about what actually, like, the, what actually happened to the people. But that's the gist of it. Allende also included in his letters a glossary of terms regarding what happened to the people on the ship and what happened to them, like, life after 
the USS Eldridge. And I don't want to be the only one who knows these words, so you are going to learn them as well. So... (laughs) I just want to say that including a glossary in your facts to the Navy is a very hinged thing to do. And I'm not questioning that You think all. it's hinged? Mm-hmm. Well, listen, they don't know. He's telling them. Yeah. Although I guess they do know. They're the Navy. Yeah. yeah. He's like, this, but he, this is kind of like, this is what you did to these people. We have to have a glossary for the pain. <laughs> so. Glossary for the pain. Our new <laughs> poem book comes out. It's going to be like one of those books that you buy for your aunt and she keeps it on the back of her toilet. I was just thinking back of her toilet. Really? Yeah. Uh, yes. So the letters describe an experience called going blank or going blank and getting stuck. Getting stuck is also known as hell incorporated. And it is when a person <laughs> hang in there. When a person gets frozen or paralyzed by a magnetic field and cannot move until two or more people that are also within the field touch him or lay hands. And if they don't make it in time, then the person freezes. If a person should freeze, that person's position must be marked carefully, and then the field should be cut off, and everyone who is not frozen, who is now able to move, must then lay hands on any bare skin of the frozen person. So unfreezing a person in this manner should take about an hour. (laughs) Sure, sure. (laughs) But in one case, it took six months. Oh, no. When it it takes a long time, I'm going to say when it takes longer than an hour, it's what's called a deep freeze. Sure. So freezing happens because a hyperfield It does happen. Yes. (laughs) 100% it does. Because a hyperfield occurs within the field of the body. <laughs> if someone stays in a deep freeze for more than a day in our time, they go, quote, stark, raving, gibbering, running mad. Our time. Yes. Time passes. It's our time down here. <laughs> down here. It's our time. So some more phrases. <laughs> Caught in the flow. Caught in the push, stuck in the green, stuck in molasses, going fast, going blank, getting stuck. Quick overview. Caught in the flow. Period. (laughs) Caught in the flow describes. Menstruation. Yes. Thank you for listening. (laughs) (laughs) This has been Menstruation Corner. Caught in the flow describes. (laughs) I'm going to start using that. Like, I'm so sorry I cried. I'm like so caught in the flow. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Uh, that's why I made 40 cupcakes yesterday. <laughs> and I had so much batter left over that I also made a cake. <laughs> Just an accidental cake? Yes. Accidental cake. Our second book of poems <laughs> comes out. That's a coffee table book. Yeah. So caught in the flow describes the feeling, the feeling of going into a freeze, like you're not in the freeze yet. But that also feels like being stuck in molasses, where stuck, that's where stuck in molasses comes from. (laughs) Caught in the push describes the feeling, the brief feeling experienced right before you turn invisible or go blank. Now, only a few people from the crew survived this experiment. They all went insane. Two of them, quote, went into the flames 
which means that <laughs> one of them. Okay, so going into the flames mean you means you freeze and then catch on fire. Okay. But in this instance, one of them froze and caught fire, but then another one came up and tried to lay hands to unfreeze him, but then he also caught fire yeah. and they burned for 18 days. And that was the end of laying hands. So that's <laughs> so that letter was signed Carl M. Allen. I I guess at oh, that point not, uh Carlos Allende. No, this was Carl Allen. I think he was Oh, like, they just happen to have the same It's I think initials. he like dropped the Hilaria Baldwin act and was like <laughs> <laughs> I love that he saw. I love that he. Yeah, that's great. He like ant, he like reverse reverse hilarious. Yes. So so at this point we're pretty sure that that those are the same person. A hundred percent, it's the same person, and you'll see later he comes forward. It's also a little unclear like whether he like came out as white like at the end of this letter <laughs> yeah. or like later in something I'll talk about. Like it's kind of unclear. I just love that he his fake name was the same initials mm-hmm. as his real name. Yeah, because he like could that. just be like, I <laughs> I was really tired. I like that. I didn't mean to say Carlos. I just meant to say Carl. So a few days later, Morris receives another letter from Carl Os. This one included the information that... (laughs) (laughs) Was this one signed Carl or Carlos? You'll see. Okay. So this one contained a little more information. Specifically that not only did they make the ship disappear, the ship teleported to Norfolk, Virginia, and then back to Philadelphia within a matter of minutes. He also says that soon after the teleportation, some sailors that survived got into a bar fight and then literally disappeared during the flight, the fight. And then also (laughs) one time a survivor of the experiment was like sitting with his family and two crew members, probably having dinner and just like stood up and walked through a wall and never, (laughs) never seen again. (laughs) That's amazing. This letter was signed very disrespectfully yours. Carl M. Allen. Why? <laughs> Who's to say? I think because he was mad that Morris was like pushing the UFT agenda. Mm-hmm. So he was like trying to bully him out of it. So Morris wrote back immediately and was like, You got to give me more. Like, this is phenomenal. And five months later, Carl responded. He said that if Morris could arrange for him to be placed under hypnosis or given sodium pentothal, he was sure he could recall more details of the events. That letter closes with, I am a stargazer, Mr. Jessup. I feel that if handled properly, i.e. presented to people and science in the proper psychologically effective manner, man will go where he now dreams of being to the stars via the form of transport that the Navy accidentally stumbled upon. And this letter was signed, very respectfully yours, Carl Allen. Thusly forthwith. (laughs) Respectfully yours, thusly forthwith. It's very like, I have the honor to be. (laughs) Um, So I can't get a clear answer on whether... The ship teleported 
during the same experiment where it just like just turned invisible or if those were two separate experiments I don't know they both happened though for sure for sure (laughs) (laughs) so Morris was told that I feel like when I have heard what from what I have heard it sounds like from one character's perspective, it disappeared. But then from other characters, they were like, oh, when it disappeared, it actually showed up in Norfolk. And then it actually, but then when it, it wasn't just disappearing, it was teleporting. Y- you would think. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some things that say like, in the first experiment, blah, blah, blah. And then in the second one, blah, blah, blah. And then oh. some people say that the invisibility happened at sea and that it disappeared from the dock. Right. But and then some people say that it's all at one. Well, we and don't have clearance. Some, we, do. we don't have the clearance. To no, know. we really don't. So that explains that. Yeah, but it's true. One hundred percent. All it's Schrodinger's experiment. <laughs> all possibilities are true. So, Morris, the experiment is not true, and please consult your doctor for having <laughs> any rash, hives, itching, swelling, <laughs> falling off of the buttocks, and. Interest in Mystery Team Inc. (laughs) Fusing with metal and (laughs) going stark raving mad. (laughs) So he told the ONR about these letters. He was like, this has got to be the same guy. I've never heard about this experiment except for these two sources and the handwriting and syntax are both impossible. Yeah. So they asked for them. They then contracted the Vero Manufacturing Company of Garland, Texas, which is, quote, a space age firm heavily involved in military research contracts, Mm -hmm. which sounds like um, those companies where the website is just like to the future. And then it's like diverse people in front of whiteboards (laughs) and they're actually like killing a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So. Vero produced mimeographs of the annotated book with copies of the letter now, one source said that 127 of these were printed, but then immediately said that some sources say that between 12 and 25 were printed. So the source I used then cited other sources, mm-hmm. and they're all wrong. Right. So it's definitely somewhere between 12 and 127 copies. Mm-hmm. That became known as the Vero edition of the book. Mm-hmm. You can purchase it, and you can also find a PDF of it. I did the latter Mm -hmm. for now. So in 1958, I think what happened is he was like, I have these letters. I kind of know what I'm talking about. The Navy brought him on to be like a scientist. And then they were like, never mind. This is all bullshit and like kicked him out. So then in 1958, Morris moved to Indiana where he started working as an editor of a small astrological publication He worked on his next book, and he tried to secure funding for further research. In late October 1958, he traveled to New York to meet with publishers and to talk to astronomical publications about the book he had been working on. And while he was there, he went to dinner at the home of his friend Ivan T. Sanderson. During that dinner party, he took Ivan and two of their other friends into a room, gave them a Vero edition of his book, told them to read it and lock it up and that if anything ever happens to him it's likely due to the subjects spoken of in that book he said quote i have a feeling that this just can't go on any longer without something unpleasant happening 
Morris was scheduled to return to Indiana a couple days after the dinner, but he never showed up. His publisher reached out to his friends in New York and didn't hear anything until mid-December when his friends finally answered, saying that they had heard from a friend of theirs that Morris went from New York to his home in Florida, where he was very quickly in a serious car accident. Hmm. He recovered from the accident for a while but it left him unable to accomplish much his publishers rejected pretty much everything he sent them and his work was being heavily criticized by his peers in mid-april 1959 morris wrote a letter to his friend in new york long john Niebel, who was a late night talk show host on wor who described the letter as quote depressing and depressed In the letter, Morris told him that he, quote, preferred to take the risk of another existence of universe being better than this miserable world, and that he had come to this conclusion only after careful consideration. And that his final wish was that Neville arrange for a seance upon his death to try to determine if communication after death is possible, which I am now requesting of you. And just know that if you do use a Ouija board, I will lie. (laughs) <laughs> be like are you here and i'll be like no <laughs> <laughs> houdini needed that too he did yeah he said he lied on the ouija board no <laughs> <laughs> he asked for a seance yeah and they used to do them like regularly and he never said anything i don't know <laughs> i just think it would be the it. ultimate disappearing act yeah to be like sitting there like yeah <laughs> i told you to do it and i'm not gonna play <laughs> <laughs> so On April 20th, 1959, at about 6.30 p.m., Morris K. Jessup was found, barely breathing, slumped over the wheel of his station wagon, parked in rural Dade County Park, not far from his Florida home in Coral Gables. He died either on the way to the hospital or shortly after arriving there of what they said was self-inflicted carbon monoxide poisoning. That's what they said. Or was it? Said. <laughs> We'll get there. So, for many years, the main roadblock to investigating the Philadelphia experiment was trying to find out who the fuck Carlos Allende was, a.k.a. Carl Allen. So, when researching this book, one of the books that I used, Moore, William L. Moore, reached out to a number of people who might know who Carl was. He got a response from Jim Lorenzen, the director of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO, in Tucson. And Jim said that in 1969, the APRO journal ran a story on Allende after a man claiming to be him showed up at APRO headquarters and claimed that he was Carl Allen. So at this point, in 1969, Carl had set out on a petty little mission He was mad because other authors and researchers had been using his letters and stories in their books and they were all making a shit ton of money and Carl wasn't making any money off of his story. So he went to APRO and was like, I lied. (laughs) I lied. I totally embellished the story because I didn't want the UFT research to be used for evil, but none of it's true. Um, Lorenzen said that privately he spoke to Alan and he told him that he 100% believes that the ship teleported to Norfolk and that he only embellished the stories of the effects on the crew. Um, But no matter what he believes, his plan worked. 
people stopped talking about the Philadelphia experiment and Carl Allen um, until in 1975, Charles Berlitz, the author of the, he wrote the book with William Moore, published his book, The Bermuda Triangle. In that book, Charles included an account by one Dr. J. Manson Valentine, a longtime student of the Bermuda Triangle and a longtime close friend of the late Morris K. Jessup. And Valentine had some very important information to add to the conversation. Apparently, in the months leading up to his death, when he was living in Florida, Morris had been depressed and in need of someone to talk to, and he had spent most of his time with Valentine, who also lived in Florida, and some of that time was spent telling him his private thoughts and feelings about the Philadelphia experiment. And this is what he told Valentine. In his investigations into the Philadelphia experiment, he had been in contact with Navy officers and scientists, and he learned from them that the experiment was done using naval-type magnetic generators known as degaussers, which, when pulsed at resonant frequencies, created a magnetic field around the ship. And he said that the use of magnetic resonance at this level is tantamount to temporary obliteration in our dimension, and it tends to get out of control. Quote, it is equivalent to transference of matter into another level or dimension and could represent a dimensional breakthrough if it were possible to control it. There's also a theory in this about like everything has a time lock on it. So like when you're born, you are given a time lock. And that means that like you're not flying around into other times and like you wake up and you're in the same timeline and you're not like traveling interdimensionally. And the magnetic resonance frequencies on the ship were breaking people's time locks, which is why they're flying around into other dimensions. And that's science. So Morris told Valentine that he believed that he was on the verge of discovering the scientific basis for what happened to the Eldridge. And he believed that the answer lay in the unified field theory and that the Navy had inadvertently stumbled onto it while performing the Philadelphia experiment. In mid-April of 1959, Morris told Valentine he had completed a rough draft of his theory. Valentine invited him to dinner on April 20th, 1959. Morris accepted and said he would bring his papers. Morris never arrived. He was discovered, as I said, in his car in Dade County, and the papers were nowhere to be found. Valentine, Ivan T. Sanderson, and others of Morris's colleagues and friends are of the consensus that the bizarre events surrounding the Allende letters were directly responsible for triggering the chain of events which led to Morris's death. But this is not the end of our story. The next chapter of our story begins where most great stories begin. In 1989, at a New Age slash UFO fest in Phoenix, <laughs> on this fateful day, a mysterious individual walked up to the microphone and shocked everyone in the room by declaring that he was a survivor of the Philadelphia experiment. And that's where we'll take our break. And we're back. <laughs> yes. This episode is brought to you by byjuice.com. <laughs> I should really contact them. And, and the Navy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Oh, it's, my goodness. It's about to get a whole lot stupider. 
<laughs> so buckle the buck up. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> Yay. We'll be right back after these messages. And we're back. We're back. Are you ready? Born ready. <laughs> Born with a time lock, more like. <laughs> when we last left our mysterious individual, he was at a New Age UFO Fest in Phoenix mm-hmm. in 1989, claiming to be a survivor of the Philadelphia Experiment. This is his story. I wonder if um, all of the people from... I wonder if uh, Girly Chew and if Diazen and What's-Her-Face were there, because they met at a UFO convention. In Phoenix? I feel like it was in, like, Phoenix I or I just feel like where else Vegas? do you hold one, you know? Yeah. Or <laughs> Reno or something? Reno. Reno sounds right. It was in, like, it was in that part of the U.S. We have to look it up. I wonder if they were there. Yeah. <gasps> they might have been. I would lose my <laughs> shit. Yeah. So, he was born Edward Cameron on August 4th, 1916. The only other <laughs> piece of information that I put in his life history is <laughs> he earned a Ph.D. in physics from Harvard, which is, like, Pretty in character for someone who went to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Like, I was born on August 4th, and I went to Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> so, he got a PhD in physics from Harvard. He says that the Philadelphia experiment began as early as 1931. And originally, it was headed by Nikola Tesla. In 1943, the project moved to the East Coast, to the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, where they were joined by Dr. John Eric von Neumann. This is Edward's explanation of the physics behind the experiment. In order to make something invisible, it was considered necessary to break the time reference that binds the three-dimensional reality. The fourth dimension is called a linear time vector. The fifth dimension, they determined, consisted of a rotating locus or corkscrew that determines the flow rate of time. To break the time reference, the group created a pulsating and non-pulsating generator system to enter and overcome the fourth and fifth linear time vectors. By changing an object's time, they could thereby cause the object to disappear and appear. Obviously. Mm -hmm. So Ed and his brother Duncan, who had a PhD in physics from the University of Edinburgh, went to the Naval Officers Training Program in Providence and then were both assigned to the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, where they joined this experiment, classified Project Rainbow. In 1940, the Project Rainbow team ran the first successful unmanned test in which they applied coils and a generator to a tender at the Brooklyn Navy Yard and were able to cause the boat to disappear. After the test, Ed and Duncan were transferred together to the USS Pennsylvania to do what I assume is like normal Navy stuff. They weren't doing invisibility experiments. The ship was dry docked for repairs in Pearl Harbor in October 1941, and the brothers took leave to San Francisco. But then, before they could return, they were told by the Office of Naval Engineering that Pearl Harbor was going to be attacked by the Japanese. And the government didn't want people of their caliber to be on board the USS Pennsylvania. (laughs) So they stayed at their desk jobs in San Francisco until January 1942 (laughs) to save them from Pearl Harbor. 
1942, they rejoined Project Rainbow at Princeton. Now, at this point, the military had commandeered the project and put them under a tight timeline because they really, really wanted invisible boats to play with in the war. The first experiment was done on a battleship, which apparently was donated by Roosevelt. And then Tesla, like, took this time to retune the entire experiment, and it was a total failure. (laughs) And he was removed and replaced by Dr. Von Neumann. The prestige. (laughs) Correct. Von Neumann redesigned the experiment again and requested a new ship, which was the destroyer, USS Eldridge. The first manned experiment took place in July of 1943, but there were complications. Ed and Duncan were running the equipment in the hold below deck, below the waterline. Ed says that they became invisible to radar and visually. And fish, yeah. Yes, and sharks. Mm -hmm. Not to crabs, though. (laughs) (laughs) They see all. Um, So they became invisible, but there was far too much power. It made the crew on deck very ill. The next attempt took place on August 12th, 1943 at 0900 hours in the Philadelphia Harbor. Allegedly. (laughs) Come on. Let's be real. Of course it happened. This time, the power level was set only to make the ship radar invisible. For the first 60 seconds, the ship was visible but shrouded in a green mist. Sound familiar? Then they lost radio contact. Then, four hours later, it returned to the same location. When they returned, some of the ship was damaged and some pieces of equipment were missing. So Ed and Duncan went back up to the deck and found that all hell had broken loose. This is a quote. Two sailors were embedded in the deck. Two were embedded in the bulkhead. One sailor had his hand embedded in the steel, which had to be amputated in place. He was the only one who lived and now has an artificial hand. The rest of the crew on deck was in a mentally deranged state of hysteria and insanity. So... This is my favorite part of the story. So Ed and Duncan tried to shut the machinery down, but the power switches were stuck. So instead, they jumped overboard. Have you tried unplugging it and plugging it back in? (laughs) That's what they were trying to do. They were just trying to use the switches. I know. At work, we call that the millennial solution. Mm -hmm. So they jumped overboard. To their surprise, instead of landing in the water of the harbor, they landed standing up in a military installation in Montauk, New York at Fort Hero, and not in 1943, but 40 years later in 1983. They were met by a 40-year-older Dr. Von Neumann, who was working on something called the Phoenix Phoenix Experiment, which was the great-grandchild of Project Rainbow. Ed and Duncan were allegedly only in 1983 for about 12 hours, but I think during those 12 hours, like, chaos may have reigned. Um, The way every book about this is written is really hard to understand. But what I think happened (laughs) on the night they arrived in 1983 was that the entire computer system of um, Project Phoenix was having a total meltdown because the team had, quote, created an artificial reality that could not be controlled. And one of the side effects of this uncontrollable artificial reality was that a Sasquatch that was described as being between 12 and 30 feet tall, 
was accidentally transported into this reality by the computer system and just ran around wreaking havoc and destroying the lab and smashing buildings and killing people. And the director of the project was like, we got to shut down the station and send the Sasquatch back to his dimension. But their power switches were also stuck. And they figured out that the Philadelphia Experiment and Project Phoenix had become locked in a hyperspace bubble. And the only way to unlock them was for Ed and Duncan to go back to the Eldridge and destroy the equipment. So they were sent back to the Eldridge, back to 1943, where they immediately went into the control room and destroyed the equipment with axes. As the machines were winding down, but before the field actually collapsed, Duncan jumped overboard again and landed back in 1983. But when he got there, he aged one year per hour and quickly died of old age. But don't worry, because using alien space-time technology, Duncan was <laughs> reborn in 1951, sired by their father and his fifth wife. And Ed remained on the ship and returned to 1943. Now I know you're wondering. I'm going to go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're wondering what happened to the Sasquatch. Obviously. So since the Sasquatch was created, it could not be destroyed. Yeah. That's the, one of the laws of physics, isn't it? Correct. The Sasquatch can be neither created nor destroyed. Correct. Yeah. The only thing they could do was remove it to another reality slash another dimension to, quote, get it out of the way. So Sasquatch was sent into hyperspace to another time. Where Which, it killed JFK? I, it, I mean, there are somebody inherited a Sasquatch. Somebody killed JFK. And, well, I'm just saying. I've never seen Sasquatch you ever and seen, JFK is dead. You ever seen two somebodies <laughs> in the same room? <laughs> so, yeah, somebody inherited a Sasquatch. You're welcome. I have a new theory. Okay. About the Philadelphia Experiment. Great. I'm pretty sure the Philadelphia Experiment is a fake virtual reality that and that like people who experienced it were subjects of the montauk experiments and that they were basically just like having like they created this like fake i don't know if it was literally like virtual reality or like hypnosis or whatever but like basically fake implanted memories of the philadelphia experiment in the montauk subjects that is not unreasonable because then it's like oh they came out of it for a minute and they were like why am i in 1983 yeah. montauk and they were like because of a hyperloop and they hit him over the head <laughs> and they like went back That's am i wrong well montauk was basically that whole fort was focused on like psychic research i know that's what <gasps> i'm saying oh my god do i need to cover the montauk experiments now i'm pretty sure that the philadelphia experiment was psychic research from the montauk it's really likely another mystery solved all right you're welcome that's it guys (laughs) cut um this i started doing this because i was like i want to do the montauk yeah we should experiment but then i came across the philadelphia experiment i was like this is it's i mean everyone knows it yeah it's like a classic we had to i couldn't like gloss over it in the montauk service of the montauk experiments so like now we can zoom out and do montauk but like also, I'm not done, but like Obviously. we can't. It had to be its own. I'm it pretty it. sure that it's 
the Montauk experiment. <laughs> it makes sense. Um, so, and they would have the power and the connections to like fake naval records. Yeah, of course. They're the Navy. Wow. It's a living. (laughs) So, (laughs) so Ed stayed with the Eldridge until October 1943 when another disastrous attempt took place. That's all he says about it. That might be the one where they teleported because that's, Allende says that may have happened in October of 1943, but he can't really remember. So from there, he was transferred to Los Alamos, but he was very chatty about what had happened (laughs) in Philadelphia, (laughs) and he was determined to be a security risk. He was charged with espionage. (laughs) I heard that as like, he was determined to be a security (laughs) risk. I will be a security (laughs) risk. Um, Same. So he was charged with, I know, (laughs) most of my life is me being a security risk. So he was charged with espionage in July of 1947. He was taken to D.C. The charges were dropped, but he was, quote, still considered too dangerous to be allowed to run around and shoot his mouth off. His words. So they did what he calls the great granddaddy of all goodbyes, which means they took him to Montauk, sent him to 1983, where he was picked up by Dr. Von Neumann, who told him that the government had told him to bury Ed. So then using the Project Phoenix alien technology, Ed was sent back to 1927 as a one-year-old to a couple who believed that their infant son had died at birth. This couple was Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Bielik. Oh, they pulled a boss baby? They boss baby him. <laughs> Is that what Boss Baby is about? <laughs> no, Boss Baby is about like a kid gets a little brother and it turns out it's the Boss Baby. But the parents just see it as like a normal baby. So where does the boss come in? He, the the baby is the Boss Baby. Of a company? Yeah. Of it. Well, yeah. It turns out that like all babies are part of like baby enterprises. What's their product? I don't think they have a product, but their whole thing is, like, being cute. And then I think the plot... Remember, we've read the plot of Boss Baby so many times. It turns out that, like, puppies are in big competition with babies for being the cutest. And so the Boss Baby has to, like, get those numbers up or so whatever. So the cuteness is their capital? Sounds like it. Is it about capital at all? Or is it, like, what's the driving force behind the... Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. I will say I'm never going to watch Boss Baby. <laughs> I don't want to know the answer. Well, the parents almost get murdered at the end. What? By, by like, the bad guy. Is this by the same people who brought us B-Movie? It could be. Because it's just as unhinged. Well, no. Nothing will be more unhinged than B-Movie. Facts. Ugh, I feel like I know less about life now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, he was sent back. And then he was named Al. Mm-hmm. Al Bielik. Mm-hmm. So as Al, he became interested in electronics. He joined the Navy in 1945. He had no memory of his life as Edward Cameron until in 1988, he saw the seminal film, The Philadelphia Experiment, and was like, whoa, that happened to me. And he called his brother, now unclear how he still knew his brother, 
That's never explained. His brother in his former life? Yes, Duncan. Sure. Who was sent back to be reborn to their Edward and Duncan's father. With his fifth wife. Obviously. So I don't know how he, like, called Duncan. Unless, hmm, unless he remembered Duncan and was, like, looked him up in whatever yellow pages and was, Mm -hmm. like, Duncan Cameron? White pages. What's the difference? Yellow pages is businesses. This is a business. Duncan and Duncan, yeah. <laughs> Duncanry. <laughs> yes. Um. So he called his brother somehow, and was like, "Do you remember?" It's another sound that's lost to history is like the turning of the white, the yellow pages, <laughs> the big thunk. Yeah. <laughs> so he called his brother and was like, "Do you remember all this shit from 1943?" And his brother was like, "It's about time. We've been waiting for you." So. He remembers his first life. He goes to meet with Duncan. He's given a lot of very cool information. He learned that the aliens were directly involved in the Phoenix Project, which was intended to take a time tunnel approach to space-time travel for interplanetary, intergalactic, and time travel. Duncan said, quote, We needed the help of aliens to understand it all, and believe me, we accomplished every objective. One of the theories that Al puts forward is that, theories, he knows that the Philadelphia experiment was basically the Greys trying to open a time tunnel, a 40-year time tunnel. Why? They had to get to the 80s. I get it. I get it. We gotta go. I would do anything to go to the 80s, too. To get to 1983... That's the dream. So he went on to co-write a book with someone named Brad Steiger called The Philadelphia Experiment and Other Conspiracies, which I desperately wanted to read, but it costs $50. And I already bought... Qui bono. (laughs) The greys, obviously. So Al spends most of his time now writing and traveling to UFO conferences as a guest lecturer, spreading the gospel of the Philadelphia experiment. I'm going to tell you about a number of other accounts of the Philadelphia experiment that have come out over the years. Two. Two accounts that I I liked. So, in the summer of 1977, Patrick Macy, an electronic construction specialist and researcher, told his co-worker this story. In late 1945, he was a guard in the Navy assigned to classified audiovisual material while on duty in Washington. And he saw part of a film that was being viewed by a bunch of Navy brass pertaining to an experiment done at sea. And he only saw part of the film. He didn't hear any of it. But it showed two ships feeding some sort of energy into a ship between them. And eventually that ship, a destroyer, disappeared into a transparent fog until all that could be seen was an imprint in the water. And then when the field was turned off, the ship reappeared. He said that at the end of the film, he overheard some of the men in the room discussing it. Some of them thought that the field had been left on too long and that that had caused the problems some of the crew members were having. One of them mentioned an incident where a crewman disappeared while drinking at a bar and someone else said that the crew was still not in their right mind and may never be. 
and there were also references made to some of the crew vanishing permanently. It's corroborated. The next one is a man named Victor Silverman, who says that he was on the Eldridge at the time of the experiment. He had enlisted in the Navy at the outbreak of World War II, and he and 40 others had become part of a special secret naval experiment involving a destroyer escort vessel and a process which he could identify only as degaussing. If we recall, the equipment on the ships was called a degausser. He said that there was enough radar equipment on the ship to fill a battleship, including an extra mast, which was rigged out like a Christmas tree with what appeared to be antenna-like structures. He also claims that while they were preparing to do the experiment, he saw Einstein wandering around the, the ship. Um, he was given the rating of engineer first class and was one of the three crew members who knew where the switches were that started the operation, which must mean that it was him and Ed and Duncan, no, right? Yeah, only two of them. Um, he also said that a series of electrical cables had been laid from a nearby powerhouse to the ship. On another occasion, this is why I don't understand the timeline. It just says another because occasion. Of the time break. The time My lock time break. log has been destroyed yeah. by depression. And <laughs> so on another occasion, he says he unexpectedly found himself in a deep fog. And his first thought was that he had somehow been blown off the ship. He watched indistinct figures in motion whom he could not identify as sailors and some other shapes that did not seem to belong on the dock. Maybe like a Sasquatch. I don't know. Could be. Suddenly, the deep fog went away. He described it as flashing off, leaving him in a very confused state and wondering what he was doing in Norfolk, Virginia. Then, just as suddenly, the green fog returned, and when it lifted again, he found himself back dockside in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. And he also said that he remembered the barroom brawl disappearing incident. So, a lot of people have dedicated a lot of time and energy fact-checking every single thing. Rechecking. Rechecking the math, yeah. <laughs> So they went through ship logs and naval records and all this stuff, and they were able to verify that Carl M. Allen, a Carl M. Allen, was actually on the USS Fuhrer Rousseff in 1943. There was some indication that the, that ship might have been near the Eldridge in the ocean in October. Like, people have, like, dug through this. So if you want to read all that stuff, definitely go read the books that I read, which are, once again... The Philadelphia Experiment Chronicles colon Extended Edition by Commander X and The Philadelphia Experiment colon Project Invisibility by William L. Moore and Charles Berlitz. And that is the truth. Wow. About the Philadelphia <laughs> Experiment. Here's the thing. I'm 100% sure that our government has done those invisibility experiments. Well, we do have invisibility capability now. Radar invisibility, yeah. for sure. And I'm 100% sure that like blasting people with that frequency will fuck up your head. So, like, whether or not they, like, actually got fused to the ship or whether, like, they just literally got brain damage from, like, getting blasted with high frequencies or something. Like, those early experiments, I totally, totally believe that, like, someone got fucked up. Yeah. Because the military was trying to create radar invisibility. I totally believe that. Um, also, I'm sure either 
before or after they realize how much that fucks you up, they probably did more experiments with fucking people up with that yeah. stuff. So like, <laughs> they were like, let's see how much it. They fucks probably you brought up. it to the bar on base and just blasted <laughs> it during a bar fight. Like, do you know what just I mean? To like, see, yeah, it's totally. And the poor waitresses, because there's an article of the waitresses Is being there? like, I don't know, he just disappeared. Yeah, and they're like. Maybe the waitresses had just had no idea what was happening and they like the guys were there and then they all ran out and yeah. they were like, they just, my brain got scrambled. Yeah. I like, I totally feel like, I mean, if there are like a bunch of people who are like, I kind of also saw that happen, then like something probably happened. Yeah. You know what happened is that a ship teleported. was turned invisible and teleported from yeah. Philadelphia to Norfolk, Virginia. And also Sasquatch was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not sure i believe about i believe the teleportation i definitely believe the sasquatch no i'm just kidding <laughs> I, I love the idea of a sasquatch being interdimensionally like summoned yeah and then he was probably so scared yeah i'm also pretty sure that or i'm not pretty sure but i also think there's a strong possibility that this was like a psy op experiment from the montauk experiment i'm sure it was I'm sure everything because did that's everyone ever come out about this in like 1986? <laughs> Do you know what uh, I mean? Like, I don't know. I think most of them have come out because it kind of like gained more, or is it because the experiments happened in like 1983 in Montauk <laughs> and they finally like, like converged two years into later? The sun. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just that's saying. That's so true. Al Bielik says like <laughs> at one point in the book he says like. They did such a good job creating my fake life as Al Bielik that there's not even any evidence that someone named Edward Cameron even existed. That's how I'm sure it's a site. And you're like, maybe he just never existed. Yeah, I'm 100%. They just like hypnotized him or something and like implanted fake memories. Are you sure it wasn't like a conglomerate of all the ruling aliens in the galaxy coming together with scientists at montauk in the 80s to create a time lock with the philadelphia experiment so that the grays could travel 40 years at a time back and forth yeah the company's called hell incorporated <laughs> and they purposefully name dropped their brand they br- the branding is strong when it becomes part of your glossary yeah uh that's so good wow good job i'm so glad you did the Thanks. philadelphia experiment i'm so glad you weren't like oh god no i loved it i mean <laughs> i did I, I rolled my eye i mean my my ocular muscles hurt from rolling my eyes so much, but I loved it. Not because of me, just because no, of not because of you. The truth, yeah. Because you of can't the truth. handle the truth. <laughs> Einstein was right about you. Me. He was like, "Don't tell anyone." My math was rechecked because Maggie Steele's eyes will roll back in her head. Oh, no. She's not ready. I wasn't ready. I loved it. I'm really glad I got an excuse to relearn and then immediately forget about <laughs> unified, unified field, field theory. theory. Thanks for reading all those books. Oh, I was like, it was just by juice. But yeah, thanks for reading that, too. You're welcome. I really had a blast. Wow, good job. Yay. I thanks for that. coming along on the ride. Thanks we'll for having me. We'll be back with Montauk eventually. Yeah, we got to do that now. Yeah. I started this when Stranger Things premiered. Really? I was like, what a fun way to tie in a <laughs> cultural phenomenon that's happening right now. And here we are three months later. Yeah, we'll do it. Anyway... Thanks for coming along on the ride. Thanks for listening. We love you and all. And watching, if you're watching on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, thanks for watching. All right. Well, we don't know. Stay in your lane. Buckle the buck up. Invisible smooches. Oh, is, it, is that like... <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> trying to do like <laughs> like a backward smooch back into yeah. the hyperspace bubble. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. <laughs> Definitely real smooches. Yes. Goodbye. Goodbye.